In chapter 23, beginning in the verse, first verse, it says, Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat, that I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique. And who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore, I'm terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me. Because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness From my face. The speech has changed. But the scenery hasn't. The words aren't being spoken from a palace. But a dump. This isn't spoken from a comfortable place like a hospital room. But more like a hard, hard sidewalk. On East Colfax. In the last few chapters, Job's friends continue to harass and accuse him. And in chapter 22, remember Eliphaz suggested that Job's guilt was limitless in verses 1 through 5, made a laundry list of his sin in verses 6 through 11, suggested that Job thought maybe he was getting away with something about lying about his true condition in verses 12 through 20. And now Job will come to his own defense. He does not so much speak to Eliphaz as he takes his heart and his sorrow and he begins to address the Lord himself. Job asks the question that a lot of people who are hurt and who are lonely and who are suffering ask. He asks the question, Lord, where are you? How can I find you? Why don't I sense your presence? And Job will use the illustration or the metaphor of a refiner's fire. That he's being tested like gold in verses 10 through 12. 
He concedes that God is sovereign in everything that he does and all the judgments that he makes and all of the decrees that he decrees and that that God will do what God has decided to do in spite of everything in verses 13 through 17. And Job is frustrated with his friends and he's frustrated with their lack of compassion and he's frustrated with their lack of sensitivity, but he begins to sense something. That his real problem isn't with his friends and his real problem isn't with his family. That there's a problem between he and the Lord. And Job wants God to hear his case. Job's searching for justice. And he senses that justice is very far away. And he's genuinely, genuinely perplexed as to why God would reward the wicked and punish the righteous. And once again, he's deeply, deeply suspicious of his friend's flawed theology that God rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And he doesn't simply believe that even for a minute and And he begins to understand something. That wicked men, when they move ancient landmarks, they'll talk about that in the next chapter. When they steal cattle and sheep and oppress the poor and engage in all kinds of wicked behavior, he's going to be asking and answering the question about what's going on. Remember what I said, chapters 23 and 24 are one speech. They're divided here. And like I said, he's still in the dump. He's still in the trash heap. He's still very, very sick. He's still very, very hurt. And yet Job is holding on. He trusts that the Lord will listen to his concerns in verse 4. He's hopefully, prayerfully willing to offer Job a response to prayer in verse 5. Will God take Job's pleas for for justice seriously in verse 6? Will God hear Job's arguments and clear his good name and restore his reputation in verse 7? Job admits... That he doesn't sense his presence and he can't seem to find him anywhere in verses 8 through 9. Job is learning something. It's about trust. The difficult lesson. The hard lesson of trust. He's learning a lesson, a lesson that many of us have to learn. Because remember, trust always involves patience. And patience when nothing seems to be happening. Remember, part of the component of trust, if you've ever said to a person, I need you to trust me, or I need to trust you. If you've ever been in a damaged relationship where where trust and respect or affection have been severely compromised, and you're trying to figure out how to get it back. 
Trust always involves patience, and patience when, when things don't seem to be changing. Trust almost always involves not just simply patience, but courage. Do you remember when Moses and the children of Israel seem trapped? Do you remember when Moses leads them out of Egypt and they come to that place right on the, on the edge of the ocean? They're there gathered by the shore and the chariots of Pharaoh are beating down on them. There's an, mar- an army marching in their direction and it looks like the chariots are going to destroy them and they're backed up against the water and the only thing that they have to look forward to is death unless the Lord delivers them, unless the Lord supernaturally delivers them. And you'll remember, it looks hopeless. The barrier looks like a trap. And then God does the impossible. The Lord opens the waters. The very thing that had trapped them The children of Israel march through the waters as they're headed for the other side. And the armies of Pharaoh are beating down. And the instrument of what looked like their annihilation is going to be swallowed up in water. What makes the story even more interesting to me. is after watching God's mighty hand and power, in watching the deliverance that takes place, the children of Israel embark on a journey of fear and whining and despair. Isn't that so much like us? We see the mighty story of deliverance that's been affected in the person of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. We read the story in the New Testament how Jesus marches to Calvary's cross, how he's placed there and how he dies there. And then we read the remarkable story of his resurrection. He's come back to life. Our sins are forgiven and we're going to heaven and then we live our lives the way that we live them. We can ask the question, why didn't they trust the Lord? We can ask the question of the children of Israel after repeated experiences of deliverance, repeated experiences of provision, repeated experiences of preservation. Why did they continue in their stubborn unbelief? And sometimes in pain and sometimes in suffering and sometimes in difficulty... God is trying to teach us patience and trust and courage and confidence. You know the text in Proverbs where some of it, it's your, many of you, it's your life verse. Proverbs 3, 5, 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He's going to make your paths straight. You know the passage. Trust always involves patience and it always involves courage. But trust always involves a willingness to surrender your future plans to the Lord. And so Job is learning about patience and he's learning about courage. And he's learning about surrender. 
And he's learning about the character of God and the promises of God. But even as he goes through the journey, he asks the questions that we dare not speak aloud to one another in private Christian company. Much of what he says is going to be informed by his pain and his suffering. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Even, even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Or even now my complaint is bitter. Why? Because the false accusations of his friends, because of the unrelenting suffering, they're bearing down on him. In verse 3 he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That I might come to his seat. You know what the passage says and also what it means. He's asking the question, where are you? Where are you, Lord? Does God have a place where he considers the human condition? And so he says, oh, that I might find him, that I might come to his seat. And again, when he's talking about his, his seat, he's talking about the place where God occupies, where God judges, where righteousness is determined and justice is, is given out. So when you see the word seat here, think of God's throne. The throne of righteousness. Remember in Psalm chapter 97 verse 2 where it says clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Job knows. Job intuitively understands. God is righteous and God is just. And his righteousness is real and his justice is real. But he still asks the question, where are you? It's interesting, Spurgeon points out that Job's prayer begins not with a simple prayer. Lord, get me out of the dump. Or Lord, heal me of my affliction. Or Lord, restore to me what I've lost. Spurgeon says, and I quote, I love this phrase. God's children run home when the storm comes on. It is the heaven-born instinct of a gracious soul to seek shelter from all beneath the wings of Jehovah. You know what's really interesting about what, what he's saying is he, he's saying, guess what? The Christian has an understanding that when the storm is blowing, when the dark clouds gather in, that there's something inside of us that wants to run into our Father's arms. You see, this is what's interesting. Job can ask the question, where are you? Job doesn't see the cross. Job doesn't see an empty tomb. The moment that you're tempted to ask the question, Lord, where are you? Look long and look hard and look deep into your Bible and look at the story that it tells and look at the place where Jesus has been and look where Jesus has come from and look what it says in the book of Acts that he's ascended into heaven and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father and that he's in control of every circumstance and every sorrow and every pain and every difficulty. So the moment that you say in your heart, where are you? All you need to do is comfort yourself with the knowledge of what the New Testament says. Philip Yancey wrote a book that I've 
mentioned often in our little study of Job. It's called, Where is God When It Hurts? McKenna points out, and I quote, Some of us have never felt the pain and emptiness behind that question. Sooner or later we will. It's the universal question of those who suffer, unquote. There's something inside of us, a deep sense of sympathy and compassion, when someone looks up from their bed of affliction and says, where are you? How come I can't feel you? How come I can't sense your presence? How come I don't sense your love? How come I don't sense your care and your comfort? And then we remember what Jesus said. Remember, he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You know, a very famous uh, Russian cosmonaut, the first one in space, Yuri Des. He was the first cosmonaut in space, and a, and, a, and a Russian official said, He has gone into space. He has been there, and he, he did not see God. You can go to the moon, and you can go to the dark side of the moon, and you can go to Commerce City. You can go east towards the plains, towards Nebraska, till you come to what looks like the edge of nowhere, and you look around and you could say, well, I don't see God here. I don't, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of the presence of God. This is what I find so remarkable, how one astronaut can go into space and say, there is no, I went there, there is no God. And another one can go into space and say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Another person can look out and see the stars and see the moon and look back on the blue jewel. And their breath is literally taken away as you see the majesty of the creation of God. Remember we were singing? He calls the stars by name. Think about that that expression. He calls the stars by name. By name, we, astronomers now say that if there's 13.8 billion light years across the universe with hundreds of millions and then billions of galaxies through every part of space and that think about the n- limitless number of stars and that God knows all of their name. You know what it would be like? It would be like if you went to the beach in Southern California and you met a person, you said, see every grain of sand on the beach from here to San Diego, all the way north to San Francisco. I know every single grain and I've given a name to each and every grain of sand on the beach from San Diego to San Francisco. I know you, you'd think, person's nuts. Who could possibly know that? But God knows Everything. But Job still feels the way that Job feels. And I think McKenna is right when he says that some will never feel the pain or the emptiness behind that question. It's only if you've been hurt deeply that you can begin to even explore the cry itself. Job says in verse 4, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. It's, it's his way of saying, if I just had an audience, if I could just have court, if I could just have a little moment 
and I could speak to God, I'm sure that I would find the right words to say. Verse 5, I would know the words which he would answer me. And understand what he would say to me. Do you understand what he's saying? He's basically saying, if I just had an opportunity to see him, if I just had the opportunity to speak to him face to face, I know that he would understand everything that I'm saying because he knows the truth about what's inside of me. He knows the truth about what's going on in my life. And he would speak to me and I would understand him. You know what this is? This is the language of faith. Haven't you ever had the conversation? Haven't you ever been alone at night in your bed or in the middle of the night, gotten up and you had a conversation with Jesus and you speak to Jesus and you say, I know, Lord, I know that you're listening. I know that you understand everything that I'm saying. And when you open up your Bible and you read the words that Jesus speaks, you understand that he understands you. Jesus understands the language of pain, of suffering, of misunderstanding. He understands the language of faith. And so in verse 6 he says, would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. This is Job's way of saying... God is really big, and God is really powerful, and God is really awesome. He is the awesome, uncreated creator, and in spite of his majesty, and in spite of his glory, and in spite of everything that he is, and in spite of the fact that he understands that I'm a human being, he wouldn't use his enormous power. And say, go away, kid, you bother me. He wouldn't do that. In spite of this huge chasm between the majesty of God and the frailty of humanity, he would take note of me in what way? He would understand That he's the creator and I am the person who's created. In verse 7 he says, There the upright could reason with him. And I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he isn't there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Job concedes the fact that if he goes to the left, he doesn't see God. If he goes to the right, he doesn't see God. If he walks forward, it's empty and dark. And if he backpedals, it's empty and dark. Job's questions and Job's concerns are sometimes our concerns. How come I keep going forward and and you don't seem to be there? And Even when I take a step backward, you don't seem to be there. And if I go left, well, there's still a pit. And if I go right, there's still a pit. Where do I go? What do I do? 
Job is asking the question that almost every single human being has ever asked. Lord, Lord, why do you seem like you're a million miles away? Lord, why do you seem like you're a billion light years away? And sometimes we're frustrated that God doesn't respond to us the way that we want in the terms that we lay out. Speak to me, God. And the Lord says, okay, I'll speak to you. Okay? I'm going to speak to you through Jesus and I'm going to speak to you through the Bible. No, no, that's not how I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you personally, individually, specifically. I need you to understand something. We have the advantage that Job does not have. We see the cross. We see the empty tomb. We see the distance has been closed, that God has revealed himself. Remember the writer of Hebrews said, God spoke in different ways in times past, but he has spoken to us in these days by his own dear son. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul said, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. John fourteen twenty. at that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. In 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter writes, Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. You have these promises in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, that you're joined to the Lord, and that you know him, and that you can cast your care upon him because he really cares for you. Why are these promises important? Because when you don't send his comfort and you don't sense his presence and you don't sense his care that the presence or the absence of your sense is not what determines reality the problem with our feelings is that they really are real (laughs) they're real feelings but they don't always represent reality can you imagine If Tiger Woods, who's not saved, comes to the microphone and he looks at you and he says, you know, sometimes I feel like I I really can't play golf. And you go, well, guess what? If you can't play golf, then there really is no such thing as a golfer. Because if you feel inadequate in your ability, or imagine Michael Jordan came to the microphone and said, you know, There are times when I just don't feel like I can play basketball. Or imagine a supermodel. One of the most beautiful women in all of the world. Admired. On the cover of numerous magazines. She comes to the microphone and she says, Almost every day I feel unattractive. And you might think, But what if each one of them were really telling the truth and they were talking about some sort of personal insecurity? There are people who don't trust the Lord. They trust their feelings. And they trust their circumstances. Job admits 
No matter where he looks, he can't see God. But he also admits that he's absolutely certain that wherever he goes, God sees him. Look at verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Job seems confident that given the a fair hearing, given a fair trial, given an opportunity to talk, that the Lord would find him innocent, or at least innocent of what he's been accused of. Willful sin or radical disobedience. I love Wearsby's comments on this passage. He says, quote, When God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat, He knows how long, and he knows how much. We may question why he does it to begin with, or why he doesn't turn down the heat, or why he doesn't even turn it off. But our questions are only evidence of unbelief, unquote. Ouch. Ouch. Look what Job says. He knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. You know why that's important to you? I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to answer it. Does gold fear the fire? What's the answer? Gold doesn't fear the fire. Why? What will the fire do to the gold? It'll purify it. Fire makes gold purer and brighter. Gold never fears the fire. And so he's saying something really, really important. He says in verse 11, My foot has held fast to his steps. I've kept his way. I haven't turned aside. The reason why this becomes important, remember in the last chapter, in chapter 22, verse 22, you might even read it for yourself. It says, Receive, please, instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. In the last chapter, Eliphaz warned Job, You better listen to what God has to say and you better be willing to obey him. And Job says, I've listened to the Lord and I've obeyed him. My foot has held fast to his steps. I've kept his way. I haven't turned aside. And this becomes important because Job's life was an honoring life. Remember, Job's life is a pleasing life. Think about this for just a moment. Is Job in the place of difficulty because he's done something wrong? No. He's entered the fiery furnace because his life is honoring to God and pleasing to God. And now I want you to think of all of the examples in the Bible where that's happened. Was Joseph in prison because he did something wrong or because he did something right? Daniel's friends, were they tossed into the furnace because they did something wrong or because they did something right? Daniel himself, when he's tossed into the lion's den, is he tossed in the lion's den because he's done something wrong or because he's done something right? 
Now, what's different about Joseph and what's different about Daniel and what's different about Daniel's friends, do we, I'm not going to speak for you. You get to speak for yourself. When I'm in difficulty, often my difficulty is self-imposed. Much of my suffering I have brought on myself. Many of the trials and difficulties that I face, it isn't because I did something right, it's because I did something wrong. No wonder Peter writes and he says, blessed are you, or oh how happy are you if you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Joseph, Daniel, Job, they honored the Lord, they followed his steps, The word was their guide. They were careful to avoid the pitfalls. They were careful to avoid the detours. And look what it says in verse 12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Doesn't that passage sound familiar to you? Doesn't this sound exactly like what Jesus said in John chapter 4 when the disciples asked Jesus if he wanted something to eat and he said, I have food that you don't know anything about. The Lord's word was the source of his guidance. It was the source of his spiritual nourishment. Jesus said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Jeremiah said it in chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus says it in Matthew 4, again in verse 4. And like I said in John chapter 4. There's a kind of food that nourishes your soul. And it's everything that God says. So what is it about this fire that we should take note of? Well, I'll just share with you what, it, what I found. What is it about fire that burns one and then purifies the other? What is it about fire that causes one person to go forward and another person to turn back? What is it about fire that makes one person bitter and the other person better? And I think that part of the answer is what we've been talking about. Trust. Trust. Trusting the Lord. Trusting the Lord in the circumstance that you find yourself in. Trusting the Lord in your difficulty. Trusting the Lord. What is your attitude towards God? What do you think about the word of God? What do you think about the will of God? Are you nourished by the word of God? Do you submit to the will of God? And if you submit to the will of God and the word of God, and then you find yourself in the fiery furnace, in the painful furnace, do you welcome the chance to be purer and brighter or do you scream as you watch everything around you burn? You see, here's part of the challenge. If you reject God's word and you reject God's will and you reject God's discipline, 
if you question the truth, the experience will only burn us and embitter us. And that's why so many people that you meet will have a horrible and a terrible experience and they'll begin to define their life in terms of the circumstance that happened to them. And then Job appeals to God's sovereignty. Look what it says in verse 13. He says, but he is unique. And who can make him change? I know. Some of you ladies are thinking, this should be my husband's life verse. He is unique. Who can make him change? (laughs) And whatever his soul desires, that he does. There are people who live their lives that way, but... Job is actually talking about the one true, living, eternal, and self-existent God. But he is unique. Remember, throughout the Bible it says there's no gods before him. There's no gods after him. There's only one God who is self-existent. There's only one God, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Job does not have any other gods that he can turn to for help. And that's an important point for you to remember. He's on the trash heap. And he's in pain. And he's suffering. And he acknowledges. Okay, what's my second choice? What's my third or fourth choice? As you go down the list of gods, how many gods are there in reality? There's one. There's only one true, living, self-existent God. Are any other gods on the list? There aren't any other. And Job realizes that. Job understands that there's idolatry. Job understands that there's man-made gods. Job understands that they're not real. And Job understands that the true God, the living God, the self-existent God, the pure God, the righteous God, the holy God, there's no way to oppose him. There's no way to change his thoughts or his mind. Isaiah 55, 11, well, Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the hearer, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, and it shall not return to me void." But it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it, unquote. Job understands how foolish, how dangerous it is to resist God or refuse God. Now, remember what we've talked about so far. If trust requires patience... And if trust requires courage, trust also requires that you know the truth about the person that you're trusting. 
Isn't it interesting how the doctrine of the sovereignty of God can bring so much comfort to one person? I know there's a God. I know that he's in control. I know that he is good. I know that he is just. I know that he is fair. I know that he is righteous. I know that God will not act in a way that is inconsistent with his character. He won't act in a way that is inconsistent with his love. He won't act in a way that is inconsistent from the way that the Bible says. How is it that that God can generate so much comfort but generates so much terror in other people. People who know and love the Lord, they're glad that he's in control. People who resent and hate the Lord, they constantly complain and question, why did you do that? Who do you think you are? Why did you do that? Who do you think you are? Can you imagine Have you ever seen a child talk that way to his parent and live? Well, maybe, I guess maybe so. But that wasn't the world in which I grew up in. Human beings are flesh. And sometimes we're proud. And sometimes we resist the Lord. And sometimes we reject the Lord's right to rule. Human beings often delight in their own will, in their own comfort, in their own way. But do you remember what we sang earlier? All my delight is in you, Lord. All of my soul All of my strength. Did you understand what it was that you were singing when you sang, All my delight is in the Lord. Everything that I find satisfying. Everything that I find pure. Everything that I find helpful. In verse 14 he says, For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Job concedes, God's going to do what God's going to do. God's in control. I'm not. God gets to determine what's going to happen. Contrast that with Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope. Plans to give you a future. You see, it's one thing to say, for he performs what is appointed for me. And it's another thing to say, Lord, what is it exactly that you have planned for me? Do you think it's God's ultimate plan to hurt you? In such a way that he'll destroy you? Or do you think that the plan of God is perhaps found in Romans chapter 8 where Paul reveals, he says, for this is the plan. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of his son. You want to know God's plan for you? I can tell you because the New Testament has already said it. It's to make you like Jesus. Now imagine that's God's plan for you. I'll tell you my plan for you. I'm going to make you like Jesus. How do you plan to do that? Well, I plan to uh, do whatever I want in order to make that happen. 
So when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you ask the question, how's, how's your plan coming along? Don't be surprised if God pulls out all of his resources in order to accomplish his plan. Warren Wiersbe again says, the future is your friend when Jesus Christ is your Lord and you don't have to be afraid. Isn't that good? The future is your friend when Jesus is your Lord and you don't have to be afraid. So what's the best way to anticipate the future? I'm going to suggest to you it's to live in the present with patience, with courage, with trust, knowing the nature and the character of the person that you've fallen in love with. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 6, remember the chorus? Alleluia! For our The Lord God Almighty reigns. (laughs) Look what Job says. Therefore, I'm terrified at his presence. Therefore, I'm terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I'm afraid of him. Do you know why he says that? Remember, he's already said it to you. Everywhere I look, I look to the left, I look to the right, I look ahead, I look back, I don't see him. I think about my future, and I don't understand what's happening in my present. I'm going to dare you to ask a question of the text. Why in the world is Job so terrified? Read it for yourself. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence when I consider this. I'm afraid of him. Does anything come to your mind? Is there any answer that you might guess? You know, it's one thing to submit to God when you see his face. It's another thing when you sense his presence, when you hear his word. But imagine you're living in a world of darkness and you don't sense his presence and you don't hear his word. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been cut off? Have you ever been shut out? And you didn't hear, and you didn't see, and you didn't understand. And in that moment of transparent honesty, you admit it. I'm afraid. What happens when things go dark? Like verse 17. What happens when you don't know what's coming next? You know, it was the church father Augustine who said... Trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's providence. But remember what I've said. Does Job have a clear picture of a cross? Not yet. Is he able to see an empty tomb? Not yet. 
Look at verse 16. For God made my heart weak and the Almighty terrifies me. Verse 17. Because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. I'm going to suggest something to you. That Job is speaking the language of pain and the language of suffering and the language of depression. Job's loss and Job's failure to understand his current condition has placed him in a dark place. Remember, 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 does Job have access to chapters 1 and 2 of this book? No, not at this point. I want you to think back on your life. When you were five or six years old. And you didn't have access to the future. And you didn't know what the future held. You didn't understand what elementary school was going to be like. Or junior high school was going to be like. Or high school was going to be like. Oh, then you met and married him. Oh, you met and married her. You had no idea what the marriage was going to be like or the family that you would have. Think about your life all the way from the past and think about your present circumstances. If you knew what you knew right at this very moment, how different would your life be when you're in elementary school and junior high school? I know what you're thinking. Terrifying? No. Some of you would go, no, I lived. I didn't die. It was awkward especially junior high school, but I survived. Job is cut off. Look what it says, from the presence of darkness. I think this has to do with his loss, and I think it has to do with his failure to understand his situation. Rather than judge Job, let me suggest that you do something maybe a little bit differently. Now, when are you most likely to be terrified? When are you most likely to be afraid? Is it when you find yourself in the dark? Is it when you find yourself in a place where you don't sense his presence or his guidance? Job trembles before the creator. Job knows That whatever chance he has for salvation, whatever chance he has for restoration, it's still in God's hands. And he has a choice. Is he going to trust the Lord even though he doesn't have the answer to every question? You know why this is important for you? Because you're called upon to make the same kind of decision. Will I trust the Lord? Am I comfortable with the answers that he has given me? And am I willing to continue to trust him even when the questions remain unanswered? Remember, Job doesn't have a clear picture of the life of Jesus. He doesn't have a clear picture of the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. But because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you know something about God's character and about God's plan. 
You know, we all have times when we experience pain, suffering, unanswered questions. We all experience times when we don't necessarily understand the plan of God. We don't feel his presence. But we remember the promises. We remember at least part of the plan. And let me help you. When you're tempted to not trust, instead of focusing on the answers to the questions that you don't have right in front of you, focus on the answers that you do have and that you do know. Sir Cliff Richard wrote, The more we depend on God, the more dependable we find him. Hasn't that been your experience? That's been mine. Remember in this chapter, Job admits that his suffering has caused him to seek God. That's what he's saying. All of these things that are happening to me, Lord, it's caused me to seek you. But I'm not finding you. He understands that he's innocent of deliberate sin, but he still doesn't know why God has allowed his present circumstances. And by the way, in the next chapter, Job's going to wonder why God doesn't judge and punish the world. Do you ever wonder that? Lord, when's it all going to come down? When is all of this stuff going to be finally resolved? Well, guess what? The next time we meet, We'll read his questions and we'll explore (laughs) some answers. One of the things that I want you to think about is trust. Trust that involves courage. Trust that involves patience. Trust that involves understanding, appreciating, embracing the character of the Lord that you love. And it should cause you to grow and trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sing the song. Lord, we know that every blessing you pour out should cause us to praise you. Lord, we know that there's Suffering, and we know that sometimes the road is marked with difficulty and pain. Lord, sometimes we know that there are way more questions than there are answers. But Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray what my pastor told me so long ago that we don't give up what we know for what we don't know. That, Lord, we make our decisions based on the, of what we do know. We know that you are there. We know that you love us. We know that you care for us. We know that you're watching out for us, Lord. We know that there is wisdom and mercy and grace. If we'll turn from our sin and we'll turn to you. That if we'll walk away from our selfishness and walk away from our sin... And Lord, if we'll embrace you, 
and your love. If we'll trust you for the right choice in our not too distant future. That Lord, we can depend on you. And that it remains true. That you're dependable. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.